This morning, we are going through the book of Philippians, and we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, in Christ with his righteousness alone, and uh, is the title of the message. And Philippians 3, last time we were together, we looked at the first three verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. We have that saying, if it's new, it's probably not true. If it's true, it's not new. Um, God is revealed, in, and if there's some guy teaching some Christianity that's not been taught before, uh, we need to be concerned. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He's talking about the legalistic people trying to bring them back under the law and using the law as a club to keep them in line. God does not want that. That's why Christ died, to get us away from that. In verse 3, for we are the circumcision, not the physical outside circumcision, who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So he's saying these Jews that are trying to get you Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law, he said, absolutely not. I'll tell you what circumcision's important. It's that of the heart. Paul talked about this. We looked at it in Romans 2 last week, where it, uh, it, it said if, if a guy is not circumcised, a Gentile, but yet he keeps the whole law, wouldn't he be considered a righteous man by the Jews? And they're like, yeah, probably would. But what if a Jew, all he did was circumcised and never obeyed God outside of that? Wouldn't his circumcision be counted as uncircumcision? Oh, yeah, it probably would. So it's not about the flesh. It's not about getting our eyes on us. It's about us getting our eyes on the Lord to worship in the spirit. Remember the woman at the well, Jesus said, woman, the father is seeking out worshipers. And the kind of worshipers he's seeking out is those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And boy, those who are circumcised in the heart are worshipers of God, not out of legalism, not out of trying to get God to like me or accept me or love me or not reject me, but we know God loves us. He's got us with an eternal grip. He's never going to let us go. And our worship is simply out of the abundance of our heart. And then to rejoice in Christ Jesus, saying the opposite, not rejoicing in ourselves. The Pharisees would say, boy, I'm such a good person. I pray five times a day. I, I, when I tithe, I, I get down my little spices and I, I can barely see them, but I go one for God, nine for me, one for God. And, and I bring this little tiny pouch of cumin in and there's my tithe. And, and he's saying, but yet you're, you're not merciful. You're not kind. You're not loving. Don't you understand? I'm glad you're doing your tithing diligently. That's, that's good. But isn't it even greater importance that you'd be full of mercy and kindness and love? Wouldn't that be even more important? So we're rejoicing in Christ, not in ourselves. Our eyes are on Christ, not on ourselves. And then the third thing, to have no confidence in the flesh our performance. You see, this is the problem. 
People say, how do you know which is the right religion? All religions in the world are focused on man striving to be pleasing to God and to try to reach God and try to pacify God not to be angry at us and, and to try to, you know, do as many good things that we can do so then I can pray and I feel worthy to pray. But then when I'm doing bad, I feel like I can't pray because I've been such a horrible little boy that I shouldn't ask God for anything. And it's this whole, all religions in the world, man's focusing on man to reach God. Christianity is the only religion where God is seeking out man and God, God is drawing near unto man. And God sent, he loved us so much, he sent his son to die in our place, taking our sins away. And now as a gift, because he loves us, because Jesus did the work of our salvation, we now just receive it as a gift for eternal life. And so Paul is now saying, he just ended saying, and we have no confidence in the flesh. But now he's saying, okay, you Pharisee types who like to think that you're, you're good enough to go to heaven without Christ, your goodness, your religiousness, all your praying and all your Bible reading and, and all of your good works are going to get you to heaven. He goes, if anyone could have ever gotten to heaven through their pedigree and good works, it would have been me. <laughs> he says in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, like these Judaizer, these legalistic people, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Let me tell you, first of all, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless or perfect. <laughs> so he's, he's saying these guys that are coming to the Christian churches, Paul literally would go say to Galatia and start a church. And as soon as they heard that Paul left town, sometimes Paul was in a city for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, even years sometimes, but typically a few months. And as soon as they heard Paul leave, they would show up saying, now we're from Jerusalem and we're from the Jewish line of Peter and, and okay, you guys got to get circumcised. You got to stop eating uh, these meats that are, that are unkosher and you got to start wearing your hair like this and and, and they're like, man, when we came, Paul, he didn't mention any of that. He just like, believe on Jesus and, and love him with all your heart and follow him. And, 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 and you're telling us, and it confused them. And Paul is saying, those guys who came and told you, those guys are nothing compared to how religious I was as a Jew. And as a Jew, as a Pharisee, I would have told those guys their works aren't good enough to get to heaven because I literally um, was at a, as, at a level that they don't even know about. He first gives the four items that come by doing nothing, sort of born into it. For example, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul had nothing to do with that. But it was given, as a matter of fact, we're going to be talking about it 
uh, this Wednesday night in, in Genesis 17. But his parents did that for him. Leviticus 12.3 talks about that on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. His father was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he was a Jew, according to that lineage, the blessed people of God. But again, he was born into that. He didn't do anything to get that. And then he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, let me tell you, there weren't a lot of Benjamites. You'd have to know about a story in Judges where they acted very wickedly, and most of them were wiped out. But what they did in, in time is they end up sort of hooking up with Judah. So Judah, the kingly tribe, and Benjamin sort of became one. And they were also, when they were given territories, their territories were right next to each other. Judah and tribe of Benjamin. And so the very first king, Saul, what was Paul's actual name? Saul. Probably all boys that were born into the Benjamin house called himself Saul. That's how you knew they were a Benjamite. So the first king of Israel, that's a pretty prideful thing to hang on to. And then you're calling, your parents call you a king, basically, after the king Saul. And then uh, their location, one of the locations they had as a Benjamite was Jerusalem, the place where God put his name. And again, because Judah and Benjamin together, it was not strange for David to build his house in the area of Benjamin uh, because they were sort of linked as one. And um, so there was a lot of reasons. Benjamites were a unique few. They weren't that a lot of people in those days, weren't a lot of Benjamites, but they were also of a very high lineage being, being from the house of Saul. And then he says the term Hebrew of Hebrews. You guys might remember in Acts 7 when uh, most of the Jews that were in Jerusalem were called Hellenistic Jews or Greek-speaking only Jews. You see, most of the Jews who lived scattered throughout the world, they're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jew, but I, I don't tell people that. And I definitely don't go to synagogue. I don't learn Hebrew. I don't study the Torah. I, you know, I, I just, you know, we, we have a couple of celebrations we do in our house and don't make a big deal of it uh, each year, but that's about it. But of course, going to Israel in their lifetime, that was something all Jews would like to do if they could afford it. And most of them did. And so when they came to Jerusalem, they were, they didn't know Hebrew. They didn't know the Bible. Uh, they were just sort of you know, really looky-loos more than real Jews. Paul says, not me. My parents raised me up. I had the yarmulke. You know, I had the curly locks. I, I was a Jew at home and in the town square. We, you know, everybody knew we were Jews and worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We were real Jews. Even though they lived in Troas, which is a very Roman city, a very... Uh, Gentile area, they for sure still lived as a Jew. And he's saying most of these guys that are telling you to get circumcised, they can't say the same thing. But now Paul goes into the next set of things that are things he did himself. Concerning the law of Pharisee. A Pharisee were the elite. You know, they were the SIL team of Jews. You know, they were the elite people. Bar, 
Um, Barclay in his commentary says this, there were not very many Pharisees, never probably more than about 6,000, but they were the spiritual athletes of Judaism. Their very name means the separated ones. They had separated themselves off all common life from all common task in order to make it the one aim of their lives to keep every smallest detail of the law. So they, they, they were the consecrated ones. I, I like to think of sort of like they were the Nazarites of the New, of the New Testament, you know. Um, they, they really gave themselves uh, wholeheartedly to be legalists, really. And they were horrible people. Um, the, the Jews, uh, a saying typical in Jerusalem is, is when they saw a Jew, they hated him because he was so mean to himself as well as everybody else. They were sort of just grumpy guys. But... At the same time, they would tell their kids, honor such a man, because no one is more godly than the Pharisee. Hated him, but had to respect him, because they were pretty zealous. And then Paul says, the next thing he did, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Paul was more zealous than any of the Pharisees. There was no other Pharisee grabbing Christians and getting them arrested, getting them thrown in prison, and even murdered. Remember, the very first Christian martyr is Stephen. And who was one of the ringleaders of stoning him to death? Paul. He got them all, the crowd together, and lined it up. said, hey, put your coats over here. He watched everybody coat so they could get their coats off, throw a good rock at Stephen. And he was there when Stephen was martyred. It affected him greatly, by the way. And then after that, he said, we're not going to just stop, stamp out Christianity in Jerusalem area. We're going to go all the way to Damascus. We're going to leave our country and go to another country and grab the Christians there and drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried and sentenced. And of course, it was on that travel that the Lord met him. And then the next thing concerning righteousness, which is from the law, tongue in cheek. There is no light, righteousness from the law. We're going to talk about that today. But if there were, I was blameless. Because in those days, they actually thought they were keeping all 613 laws. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus going, something's missing. And all the apostles said, man, this guy is a good guy. He's got the reputation of being the best man in his city. Uh, and he wants to talk to you. You should, you know, he's sort of a VIP, Jesus. Give him a chance. And he's like, something's missing. And Jesus is like, oh, keep the law. And what did the rich young ruler say? I've kept it perfectly from my youth. Now, Jesus didn't say anything directly to him, like, liar. Um, <laughs> but he's like, okay, hmm, kept it perfectly from your youth. I think Jesus in his mind's going, well, what's the first commandment? Hmm, have no other gods before me. Okay, sell everything you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. He went away very sad because he was a very rich man. There, there's, he, his God was really money and the security that money brings. It wasn't the true and living God, and he failed number one. But again, they did think in their minds that they were keeping it perfectly, as crazy as it seems. And then the question comes down, why does such religious pedigree, why is it so impressive to us humans? You know, it's, it's bizarre 
But yet there, there is a power in it. You know, have you been to a great cathedral and you're looking at this architecture and, and a lot of these great cathedrals took anywhere from 400 to 800 years to build. <laughs> you know, in other words, the guy who started it died way before they even barely got started. And a whole nother generation took over for hundreds of years. And you're looking at something that took hundreds of years. And a matter of fact, today, with, with all the modern cranes and everything, it would be a challenge to build something out of all this rock and, and, and the, and the uh, genius of how they combine that rock and those rocks to support that. We don't even know if we could do that today. We would use iron rods and stuff. It, it's, it's impressive. And they got the big sound because the, the, they, they build it in such a way that everything echoes and you're hearing the music and, oh my gosh, it's so heavenly. And then you smell the incense and you see the candles and you hear the chants and you kneel and stand up and kneel. It, it's, it's, it does feed the senses to say, wow, wow, this is, this is impressive. Or, you know, you go to Tibet and you see those monks on their knees climbing, climbing, climbing. And, and then you grab this wooden thing that makes all the noise and you go down, makes all this noise. And you do the chimes, and, and you see these guys so colorful. And they're all these bald uh, uh, gurus are walking around, these, these uh, Tibetan monks and all these beautiful colors and all their flags. And, and it's appealing to us. It's appealing to our flesh. And, and there is a draw in that to say, yeah, just, just let the religious power of religiousness carry you. And that they'll tell you that. Pray like this or kneel like this or, you know, do this pilgrimage and climb on your knees 10,000 steps to the top of the thing and, and, and you'll experience a, a spiritual uh, enlightenment you've never had before. And people without the truth are often willing to do the most absurd things. People that are brilliant will join these cults. This cult leader is so obviously just a con artist but yet thousands of people give everything they have. Sometimes people that are multi, multi-millionaires, you know, the, the guru says, let me unburden you of all your worry of money. I'll take care of you. Just give me your money, and I'll take care of you the rest of your life in our convent here. It, it, is, it is a challenging thing to the, the flesh. So when these guys came and said, get circumcised and eat this way and, and dress this way and cut your hair this way, their, their, their reaction wasn't like, oh, yeah, that's stupid. Oh, get away from me. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, that, I think that will help me. I think if I start cutting my hair like that and get these curly locks, I can see how that would help me to be closer to God. I mean, if I get circumcised, I'm committed, baby. <laughs> it was appealing. Matter of fact, in Colossians 2.23, it says, These things, these religious things, indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body. But in truth, they have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. As we conclude on this 
trying to promote your own self-righteousness. We glory in us rather than glorying in Christ Jesus. If anyone could lay claim to pleasing God by law-keeping and the works of the flesh, it was Paul. He was far more qualified than these legalizing opponents uh, that are bringing such claims. If you want to learn from someone who, has, who had it all down, you want to listen to Paul. Paul had it all down like no other. And the next verse in 7 through 9, Paul is going to explain all these things he counted as most valuable in his life are now counted as dung. Well, verse 7 there. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. A couple of things I want to make note here. First of all, in the Greek here, the word gain is actually plural. And then the word loss is singular. And interesting, Paul is going to say, all this religious stuff I had was a single loss. But when I set it aside to walk by faith in Christ, I have so many gains. I'm still learning about all my gains. So don't feel sorry for Paul. It was just one big lump of doo-doo. One loss. He eliminated. It was slitting on the ground. It smelled. It stunk. He walked away. And all of these gains. The other thing is I want you to notice the word counted. It's in the past tense. There was a point probably on the road to Damascus. And then when he got to Damascus and he prayed and fasted for three days and he was blinded from the light of the glory of God. And, and, and when Ananias came in and said, Brother Paul, and he laid hands on him. His scale came from Paul's eyes, and he shared Jesus with him. And, and within a day, Paul's out preaching about Jesus. He came there to kill everybody who's uh, talking about Jesus. Now he's preaching about Jesus in a very short order. It, it, at that moment, he just counted it all as lost in a moment in the past when, when he believed on Jesus. And he gained it. He counted it that he could gain for Christ. I counted it lost for Christ. It was for a very definite thing. I didn't just give up religion because it's all a crock and they're all hypocrites and all they want your money and all they're trying to do is build, build a big building to their name and, and it's all about everybody goes to church and it's about that pastor trying to get as many people he can to get as much money as he can to get as, on many television shows as he can to get as popular as he can and I'm going to quit being a little pawn in his religious game. Forget it. I'm just going to start drinking beer and get on my boat on Sundays. It's not what happened here. <laughs> Paul gave up all his religion so he could have Christ, but he knew he couldn't have both. Christ was hounded by the religious people because he was not going to their universities. He was not quoting their rabbis. He did not wear their religious clothing. He did not have their religious haircut. He did not talk like them. When, Jesus, when the Pharisees of those days would talk, they'd say, well, Shammai says this, Hillel says this, the Mishnah says this. When Jesus taught, he taught as one having authority. And they hated him for it. 
And Paul is saying, I got Christ, but I got a carpenter from Nazareth, not a scholar from the seminary. I got a guy who was, not me, guys. Psalms 52, 53 tells us he was ugly. Jesus was comely. He did not look, he was not an attractive person. And the Bible makes it clear that people were drawn to him. It wasn't because of his good looks. Quite the opposite. I love what Gail Irwin points out. He said, when you add up the amount of oils and everything they, they gathered to um, anoint Jesus' body, Jesus would have been a very large man. People don't like to think of Jesus, you know, we always got the perfect uh, surfer body uh, in the pictures. And his hair, you know, is just perfectly blown dry. And <laughs> I, th I think we would have saw a big, fat, ugly guy. I like that. Are, are you thinking, because it reminds me of me, is that what you're thinking? That's horrible. Horrible of you guys. I wasn't thinking that. No, I was. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I, I get Jesus. But I can't have Jesus in religion because they're completely opposite of each other. I can't have Jesus and all this stuff that makes me feel secure and makes me feel like this big religion is something I can feel secure in and confident in. And, it, you know... It's been around for hundreds and thousands, you know. No, we're letting it all go. For the simple words Jesus said, believe in me and you'll never perish, but have everlasting life. What did you get? That's what I got. Jesus. And guess what? It was worth it. My entire life, all my years and years and years of education, all of my years of, of living as a Jew and as a Pharisee, I had built such a reputation. I had had so many, I had such great respect in this very large Jewish community. I was more zealous than all. I stood out. I, I could have been the next, uh, you know, main Sanhedrin running Jerusalem and, and running Judaism throughout the world. But Paul says, I let it go that I could gain Christ. No doubt for Paul, it was a great loss. It's interesting to be a Pharisee. This is written down. You had to be married. Paul was a Pharisee. He had to have been married. You know why the Pharisee said, uh, you know, why they, they made that one of the rules that you had to be married? This is what they said. This is not me. They said, how can you minister to people unless you have gone through much suffering? <laughs> and so therefore, you must be married to know true suffering so you can minister to others. That's what they said, not me. And, uh, <laughs> But he lost all his friends. He lost his family, probably lost his marriage. The problem with, again, the self-strength, self-sufficiency is sometimes we can fall into that trap of trying to become something for God 
that he can use us great. The problem is that we can become a person who learns to trust in our own strength and not God's strength. It is not we, it's not what we do for God that counts. It's what he does in us. The greatest work on planet Earth right now is what God's doing in you, changing you into his image. God wants to do a bigger work through us than we could ever do through ourselves. We just need to become fully dependent upon the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. That's what he says. It's what happens, you get your eyes off yourself and you start get your eyes on the gift of Christ and the grace of Christ and the kindness of Christ and the love of Christ and the patience of Christ and that he's our husband, he's our friend, he's our savior, he's our shepherd, he's our Lord and, and he, his mercies are new every morning. When we sin and struggle, his grace abounds more. We come boldly to that throne of grace and he's there to give us mercy and grace, not to give us a hard time. Come boldly into the throne of grace so he can pound on you. He can give you a hard time. He can discipline you. No, we come to the throne and we get mercy and grace. And we can now just rejoice. When I think about Jesus, I see somebody smiling at me. Even when I've gone through a horrible valley, even when I've struggled with my flesh, my anger, my addiction, my lust, my greed, whatever it is. I went through a very hard, dark season these last few months or years. But yet every time I looked, I saw God's love and grace, like the prodigal, the dad of the prodigal son, hugging that son that smelled like pig, put a new robe and a new ring. David talks about this in Psalms 115, verse 1. He says, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name, be name, give the glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Isn't that a great song? Not unto us, not unto us, but to your glory, to your mercy, to your truth. God, we give you praise. I asked the band to sing that hymn today. To God be the glory. Verse 1, I, we're going to sing it again later. I just really want you to think about this verse, if you can. In verse 1, To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Who yielded his life in atonement for sin. And open the life gate that all may come in. The second verse. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender, me, who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And the last verse. Great things he has taught us. Great things he has done. And great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Powerful, powerful stuff.
Well, verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now notice, first of all, the word count now is in the present. Paul in verse 7 says, in the past, there was a moment in time where I counted all things lost because I gained Christ. And now he says in the present, which is a continuous action into the future. Paul says, presently, I count everything as loss. And I will continue to count everything as loss. That I might gain the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's, Paul is saying, I, it's easy for me to get back into religious mode. It's easy for me to become that religious robot again. <laughs> That's our human flesh. Have you ever had it where you're at dinner going, well, shall we pray? I just prayed. We all bowed our heads and prayed. Yeah, we did. You did too. But your, your, your brain was in religious mode. And, and, and what happens? We, we have this religious prayer and, and we, get, we get into this religious mode and really accomplishing nothing because we're not really connecting with Jesus and fellowshipping with Jesus and hearing the voice of Jesus. We're, we're just coming back to a religiousness. And Paul says, I'm continually counting it. I love it. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I die daily. <laughs> I like that. Counts everything lost daily. All things. Again, I think this was a very deep, cutting, hard thing for Paul. I, I was raised, Cameron mentioned today, I, I was raised in, in a church. And I loved my denomination. All my family were in that church. My wife's family for many, many generations. Both of us have been in that church. And we loved it. But the church became very, very liberal. Today it's getting ready to go over the edge in liberalness. But the people in the churches we grew up, especially uh, with Cheryl back south and me in the valley of, of California, were very conservative. Loved the Lord so great, even though the denomination, without their knowledge, was completely becoming liberal. And so when the Lord met me and my wife and got baptized in the Spirit, it's a whole story, but when the Lord said, it's time for you to leave, literally, it was like somebody cut my arm off. And even now, we, we still love that church, and it just grieves us so. And we still have so many people. We went to the college of this denomination. We just went to uh, Cheryl's uh, 80th graduation. What was it? I can't remember. No. Her, her what, no, seriously, is it 40th or 50th? I can't even know. Huh? 40th. Her 40th reunion. That's, that's her. Mine's not till next year. Um, but we're there with these people, and they love the Lord. And they're just so grieved also over it. And I, and I just can't imagine Paul never going to the temple again, never going to the temple site again, giving up all of the rich traditions. You've you got to realize a lot of the traditions and cults 
A lot of the traditions and deep religion is revolved with the whole family. In our denomination, every four years, they had an international convention, and all our families went to it, and it was like a big family reunion every four years at the international church convention. And to not go to that anymore was a huge thing. So I, I think Paul felt the ripping and the tearing of his love for Judaism, his love for Israel, his love for Jerusalem every single day. It was something he had to wrestle with. Now, what's interesting, in the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews, Paul is addressing Jews who are wanting to go back to Judaism. Some of them in Galatians, they're like, yeah, we're going to go back to Judaism and take Jesus with us. And Paul's like, can't be done. If you start going back to the law, you've, you've departed from Christ because Christ died on the cross and putting to death the law. And then in the book of Hebrews, he, he says just out and out plainly, if you go back to the law, there is no place to come back to Jesus. You cannot have it. In Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ is no longer Judaism. It's no longer religion. In Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. I no longer live in Judaism. I no longer live in the law. I am living now by faith, trusting in the words of Jesus. Believe in me, and you shall have everlasting life. My life is now walking by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not, or I will not, set aside the grace of God and go back to the law. If righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. They can't go together. Because the whole point of Christ's death was to conquer our sin and the law itself. But he says, what do I get in its place? I get the excellence, the surpassing, the superior knowledge. Knowledge is here is gnosko in the Greek. It's, it's, you get it by experience. Of whom I suffer the loss of all things. This is deep. The word here to suffer loss, it literally means I was damaged. I sustained damage. It's almost like it's not a word you'd use in a shipwreck or for us a car wreck and our car got totaled. Paul said, that's what happened to me when I came to Christ. My whole world as I knew it was damaged. You know, we, we in America, we, we haven't really thought through this. But I've read so many missionary books. I started reading them when I was a child. And you read what happened behind the bamboo curtain in China, behind the iron curtain of the uh, former Soviet Union. Right now, India used to be uh, like the 25th country that persecuted Christians. It got moved up to ninth, right behind Iran. Christian, Calvary Chapel churches, guys, they're coming in. The president is for this of India. He, he was a governor of India, and he literally said, I've stamped out all religions but Hinduism in, in my state. And if you elect me as president of all of India, I'll do that for our whole country. 
So right now to go and to burn a Christian village down, to, to kill people, to imprison them, whatever it is, it, it's legal. The art, we had five different Calvary Chapel um, Bible colleges, training pastors in India. They're all underground now. So I've, I've taught at them, and I, I do it on Skype, and I got to do it like at anywhere from 10 at night to 2 in the morning. I'll teach a two- or three-hour class. Often it gets translated in two different dialects, so I say something, and I got to wait for them to get through and teach the Bible. And these guys, they're just so hungry. First time I saw them on Skype, they looked like a bunch of terrorists. They were a little scary. I'm like, whoa. And then you talk to them, and oh, they love the Lord so much. But they all know. As a matter of fact, one night I was, I was teaching, and the guy says, I gotta go. He hangs up and never heard back. I called a couple of the guys who helped run it, and they're like, yeah, probably the police were banging at the door. Sure enough, I talked to him the next week. The Secret Service had showed up with six people, and um, they interrogated every student. About half of the school got arrested, and uh, all the the, the teachers. So uh, we can't even go visit these Bible colleges that that would make it known that they're there working underground. So when Paul became a believer, he lost his marriage. He lost his family. He lost his standing, lost his future in Judaism. For many people today in Iraq, Iran, who become Christians, Afghanistan, a lot of, there's a major, right now, major underground Christian church in Afghanistan. They get baptized, they die the same day. They become Christians and stop going to the mosque and praying. They get put to death. For them to, to come to Christ, they're greatly damaged in certain ways to gain eternal life. For us, it's not that way yet, is it? It's getting soon that way. Very, very soon, it'll keep you from getting into university. It'll keep you from getting that job, or it'll get you fired for, from the job for being a Christian, and you'll be damaged like Paul talks about. But he said, I count it all as rubbish. The word there is excrement, dung. I think today we might say toxic waste. But I get to gain, win Christ. I win. I win is what Paul says. The old King James actually says that word. But I win because I have Christ. And then to finish up in verse 9. And to be found in him. That's it. That's the most important thing. To be found in Christ. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God. How? By faith. Boy, I wanted to spend so much time on this, but we are going to come back to this next week as we go into the next couple of verses. Um, but he says, to be found in him not having my own righteousness from the law. You want, to talk, you want to tell me what I'm excited about being in Christ? That's no longer about me making myself righteous. I tried and I tried and I kept failing. Right? Paul in Romans 7 said, man, the things I want to do, I what? I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I 
do? Oh, wretched man that I am, how am I ever going to get out of this, this tragic loop of my weakness and my flesh? Here's his answer. I'm so thankful for Jesus. And then chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. I'm so glad I, I gave up all that stuff, but I'm so glad I don't have to keep toting this giant religious thing that's just smashing me. And I go around, I get others, you should become a Pharisee. And then I just heap this big bundle on them and smashes them. When Jesus looked at all the people who were being taught by the Pharisees, he was angry. He said, you're a hypocrite. Oh, outwardly, you look like this. Everybody thinks you're doing this, but secretly, you know what's going on in the truth of your heart. And then he just said to all the multitude, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, this big religious thing, looking religious, acting religious, trying to appear as religious, trying not to let anybody see how bad I'm really doing at being religious. And I, I got to sort of, you know, come to synagogue and, and fake everybody out for a couple hours and then go home in the way I really live. I can't tell you how many preacher's kids are so bitter at God, at their parents, at the church, because the dad would say, now, don't tell anybody what me and mom said to each other last night. I could get fired. Do not tell anybody about you. Know, and this would be on the way to church every Sunday. Don't tell anybody we watched that movie. Don't tell anybody that we, I, I cussed mom out. Don't tell anybody that mom kicked the dog. Don't, you know. And these kids would literally go to church like, ah, because they've got to appear because the church is counting on them to appear holier than they really are. Religion does that. <laughs> sort of got a funny story on that, but my, my four-year-old at that time, Tracy, who's now with the Lord, he just was an honorary guy. And he had, the teacher was telling this four- and five-year-old Sunday school class, why, I have no idea. But we don't go to horrible movies like the Titanic because there was nudity in it and, you know. And, and my son, Tracy, says, oh, Titanic, that's where the boat sinks, right? How he knew that at four, I have no idea. <laughs> we watched it last night. It was a great movie. Totally not true. But that teacher afterwards wanted to talk to me, going, hey, I'm leaving the church, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, why? What's going on? And I just started laughing so hard because that was exactly the way he was, just to push this guy's buttons for whatever reason, I don't know. But uh, I'm so glad I never once told my kids that. I never once was one way at church, another way at family reunions, another way when I was these neighbors, another way when I'm with the church people. I'm glad. I'm just, I don't think anybody here is under the delusion that I'm like holier than any of you. Matter of fact, I'm holier than all of you guys put together. <laughs> nobody, th nobody thinks that. Everybody thinks I'm just a regular guy. 
who loves the Lord and, and trips and falls and gets up. The righteous man falls seven times, and he's able to get up seven times. Why? Because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. But Paul said, I'm so happy that my righteousness is complete. It's completed. Jesus on the cross said, it's finished. My righteousness is complete because it's done by Christ, and I am found righteous in Christ. Remember Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That word justified is the same as making righteous. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be made righteous, justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, in chapter 7, he explains this. Paul said, I felt like I was a really righteous guy until I happened to read in the law one day, don't covet. And then all of a sudden, I've never wanted to covet more than I wanted to covet right now. Why is that? I mean, if I had a hundred cabinets up here on this wall and I'm like, hey, my job, I'm a security guard. I got to watch these cabinets, but I need you. Could you do this for the next four hours for me? I'm going to lock the door. Nobody's going to bother you. You sit in here. Just you can look in 99 of them. Just that one down there. Don't open it. Do not look in that one. See you later. Now what's going to happen? Do you even open the other 99? You don't, do you? This is what the law did. Paul says it, it made me act on things that I realized it wasn't the law. The law was right. Don't covet. That's correct. But I found that in me is this rebellion, this wickedness, this sinfulness. There's no good thing that dwells in me. Hold on, no, I'm not born again Christian. God's spirit lives in me. Okay, in my flesh. In my flesh, I find this struggle that's just so hard and, and legalism couldn't stomp it out. And the more I tried to stomp it out, the more I did it. Have you ever found that? The more you think about it, the more you think about it. <laughs> the harder you try to stop it, the harder it is to stop. Until you just come and say it's in Christ. That I lose it all, but I gain. I gain this fellowship with Jesus. I gain the word of God. I gain prayer. I gain the family of God. I gain strength in Christ. And, and Paul talks about this in, in Romans 7, how, man, the law, it helped me because when I read the law and understood the law, I died. And through the law was the knowledge of how sinful I am. And there's no religion, there's no amount of religious activities that can take care of that sin nature. Again, in Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, Adam up, no flesh shall be justified in God's side. But we have a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which is from God by faith. God gives us the gift, and the gifts in the calling of God are irrevocable. Why? Because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He took our sin upon him, and now he gives us righteousness. In Romans 3, 21 to 26, 
But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by grace, that's the same root as gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who, what? Has faith in Jesus. Remember the thief on the cross? His hands are tied. His feet are tied. He could never do anything to earn salvation. And he was a sinner. He was mocking Jesus with the multitude while hanging on the cross. But then he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he said, Jesus, Lord, when, future tense, you come into your kingdom, kingdom, he's a king, and he's going to raise from the dead. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's it. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, you've got some faith, but I wish it was a little bit more. Did he judge his faith? Jesus didn't judge his faith. Any amount of faith is due. A little mustard seed of faith will move a whole mountain. I think it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that to cause somebody to be born again. God doesn't look at how much faith you have. What was his faith in totally? Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, what? Remember me. It's all about you, Jesus. Remembering me, I'm saved. He has faith alone in Jesus alone. And of course, what did he know? Did he know Jesus was the son of God? No. Did he know he was virgin born? No. <laughs> did he understand he was even the Messiah? Probably not. But he believed this guy's nature was loving and forgiving. And he had said he was going to raise from the dead. And I believe it. I want to be with this guy. Wherever this guy's at, that's where I want to live eternity. I'm not sure. I don't know much about him. But a guy that's so forgiving to all these people that are nailing him on a cross and spitting and ripping his beard out and mocking him. And he's, he's using his little energy in total screaming pain, torturous pain. He's using his energy asking God his Father to forgive them. There's hope for me. He didn't say how much faith he had, the quality of faith, the knowledge of his faith. He just had some faith. And his faith was in Jesus, his kindness. Now, it's called a progressive revelation. We hope today you have much more knowledge that you have faith in. When we choose or decide to trust Jesus' death for being the payment of our sins, then he can give us his righteousness in replace of that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ, say it with me, died for our sins, according to the scripture. Christ paid 
the penalty of your sin. I'm going to drive this home in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to what? Be sin for us. That we might become what? The righteousness of God. Important last two words. In him. In Christ. When we say Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, now I'm in you and you're in me as I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. And we're in you and you in us in a perfect unity. And when God looks at you, he only can see you in Christ. In a perfect righteousness, even though you're struggling, even though you're sinning, even though you're going through a valley of the shadow of death, he sees you in his son in a perfect righteousness. First John 2, verse 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, the story doesn't end there. But if you sin, forget it. Story's over. No, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, that's a lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that title. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for what? The whole world. We can tell the whole world Christ paid for your sins. And if you believe upon him, he'll give you the gift of righteousness. And that's the end of that story. We're going to pick up there next week and go into the next couple of verses that are so rich, so deep. Lord, we come before you now and it took me much longer to talk about it than it did Paul to write it, but we just lay it before you, God, that you would instill in us a deeper faith in you, Jesus, in your righteousness than we've ever had before. That you would do a deeper work of grace in our soul, a deeper work of grace in our hearts, a deeper faith to trust in you, and to go and tell all the world the great knowledge that you died for their sins, you became their sin as well, that they could become the righteousness of Christ in God, in, in the righteousness of God in Christ. If there's anybody hearing this here in the auditorium or maybe five years from now on the radio or, or uh, streaming it off our website, Right now, just believe Jesus to be your Savior. Receive him. As many as receive him, to them he give the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the knowledge of your son, Jesus, that we could have joy and confidence in believing. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.